called the Creekside Youth Music Team here. Um, we just decided to try this in a, as an experiment um, this summer. So we took a few weeks and we've, we've just been practicing for a few weeks here and trying to put some songs together. And I just really appreciate these kids and how they've been willing to try some new things and, and use their talents. So I hope, you, I hope you enjoy it this morning. And we don't know where it'll go from here, but we just, you know, we just ask you to, to sing with us today and, and, and uh, Encourage these young people and um, enjoy this time together. So I think we have some more announcements. Pastor Steve. I have a few things to call to your attention. In your bulletin, there is a little flyer here. We have a team of people headed to Haiti in about five weeks. And we're doing our best to raise money to help support that team. Also to help raise money to do their VBS that they're going to be uh, providing food and uh, supplies for. But also to provide for uh, some employment opportunities for local Haitians to do the work that we spend a bunch of money to send uh, you know, Americans down to do. Also to raise some support to put kind of a fund together so that we can help send other people uh, from Creekside Church that may not be able to fund it all themselves. So a lot of good opportunities. So there's a lemonade stand out there. If you came in, you saw the lemonade stand, you may wonder what's going on. Well, our Sunday school, uh, gals and uh, students are raising money through that uh, lemonade stand for the Haiti team. And in this flyer in the bulletin, uh, Jake and his mom, Jake Markhart, who owns the, and operates the Perk Up Cafe, starting the 28th through the 31st, they have a special pancake breakfast. And when you buy that pancake breakfast, it's like $10 and all the proceeds are going to our Haiti team. So, invite your friends, your family, your neighbors, your cousins, your long-lost relatives, and head out to the Perk Up Cafe and uh, buy some pancakes and enjoy the meal and also contribute to the, the cause of the Haiti team. We're just glad to have you do that. want to ask you to be praying as a church family. Alec and Annie Packer are directors of Navigators at Drake University, and they'll be beginning, beginning their ministry this week, so please be in prayer for them as they work with college students. You know, as I know, uh, with our last just starting our freshman year, that the college years are very, very important in their formation of their where they're headed the rest of their life. Also, Mary has a need in Awanas for some helpers, so if you haven't signed up yet, the table is out there in the entryway as you come in. We need specifically people to help in the four and five-year-olds and with the two and three-year-olds. So you would be very well served if you would uh, sign up. We'd be encouraged by that, but as God leads you to do that, we'd appreciate it. Last thing I'm going to bring to your attention is that out in the parking lot, you see a box. It's up on some stilts. It's called the Little Free Food Pantry. We partner with the reserve next door to supply free food for anybody who needs it. Nobody's monitoring it. We have a lot of video cameras in the church. We don't have a video camera on the little free food pantry. So whoever feels like they need food can come and get food whenever they want it. And we have partnered with the reserve. And so like every other time, we're trying to take our turn in filling uh, that. So we raise as much as we can, and then we give it to them, and then they put it out as it's needed. So really encourage you to look at the bulletin and read the information on that. So thanks for your attention. I'll let the youth team take it away. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He's our rescuer, he's our rescuer, we are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound, oh, how grace abounds, we will praise the Lord, our rescuer. There is good news for the captain, good news for the shamed, there is good news downer, 
Dakota and uh, young people for leading us in worship. Yeah. Amen. Uh, they're not done, but uh, they're going to come back, I think. But uh, we're grateful for that. I'd invite you to pray with me, if you would. If you're in Sunday school, you all are dismissed right now. You get a break from lemonade, and uh, you get to learn a little bit about Jesus. So let's pray. Father in heaven. It is amazing grace that we sing about. It's amazing grace we speak about. It is a wonderful opportunity for us to worship you through the study of your word. And, and I pray, Father, as we come to this precious text, just the desire of my heart is that for each of us here, these things would not just become truths we know in our head, but that by your grace and by your spirit and by your power, they might become realities in our lives. For we pray and ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You know, the relevance of our study in the book of Psalms comes to, not ahead, but very, very evident in the text that we come to this morning in Psalm 73. You see, Asaph, the guy who wrote the psalm, he was a worship leader, just like these people are, in the tent of meeting before the tabernacle was actually constructed. And he was a very righteous man, but he struggled with an age-old question, an age-old problem that has plagued and perplexed people of faith for centuries. Job struggled with it. David struggled with it. In Psalm 73, we read David's struggle with it. And here we read of Asaph's struggle with it. The struggle is that, how is it that those who reject God, those who resist His Word, seem to prosper, while those who follow God suffer? How does that work out? Why is that true? I did a little research this week. Why is it that people in stars, pop stores like Tyrone Sivan, that some of you may not know, but you can Google his name and, and see about uh, Tyrone Sivan, or irreverent actors like Gene Hackman and Jim Carrey seem to prosper, yet you take a person, an actor like Kirk Cameron, or someone who's outspoken about their faith, and this is not a political statement, okay, like our vice president, Mr. Pence, who recently, just this week, a new book came out vilifying him because he's outspoken. How is that square with 
our faith. Because here's the deal. If we have a good God, and if we have a God who is actually sovereign and in control of things, doesn't it make sense that those who follow this good and gracious and all-powerful God should flourish? And those who resist Him and reject Him and malign those who follow Him, who resist His word, shouldn't they flounder? And yet, that's not what Asaph experienced. How is it that in our, our politics and at our workplace and in our neighborhoods, oftentimes it's the people who are the most belligerent, obnoxious, and ungodly people who seem to be getting on rather well. And those of us who are trying to do things the right way struggle and suffer for it. We leaves us asking the question, is purity of heart really as precious as or as priceless as we have been told it is? Or is it really pointless? You know, just, you know, forget it. Well, that's the question that Asaph dealt with in Psalm 73. That's the question that I've grappled with. I would assume that's a question that many of us struggle with. And so here we are in Psalm 73, and it's Asaph's testimony. And in this testimony, he reveals a three-step process that moves us from confusion to conviction that indeed a pure heart is priceless. I'm in Psalm 73. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll unpack these three steps in the process that he went through in coming to this conclusion. Surely God is good to Israel, he starts in verse 1, to those who are pure in heart. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to it, or if you want to use your phone or tablet or whatever, or there's a pew Bible in front of you. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death. And their body is fat, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They set, have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place. And waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. And they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of the Lord. Then I perceived their end. Surely, you do set them in a slippery place. You cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. You have guided me with your counsel. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing I desire on earth besides you. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. And you will destroy those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your wonderful works. The first step in the process is an experience of disillusionment. 
Now we start the psalm in Psalm 73 with verse 1. Asaph's testimony, I kind of liken it to this. It's kind of like a roller coaster ride. He starts at the summit of the roller coaster. And then he plunges into the depths. We start the summit is his conviction. He states it in verse 1. Then he plummets and plunges into disillusionment. And then he hits rock bottom and is jolted into the reality of who God is. And then he rises back up and returns to the place where he began. Asaph was this righteous guy. And he states in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He states the conviction of his soul that has, he has arrived at through his journey of doubt. He's gone through this journey and he states, starts with his conviction that he gave, got to at the end of the journey. I was sitting in a waiting room at Mayo Clinic and there was a man, I overheard the conversation, and he was talking to another man, and he said, you know, this place has added 15 years to my life. He was convinced, he stated his conviction that was the consequence of his long journey through his pain and his sorrow and his suffering. I say so. This is my conviction. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Not just to Israel, but to all who are pure in heart. Those who are righteous. Those whose sins have been forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because only in Him are we made righteous. You read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. To the pure in heart. He writes, a conviction that he had come to over time wasn't immediate. He was a righteous man, but his experience educates and encourages everybody who's willing to listen. Come to the conviction that a pure heart is truly priceless. It's priceless. Asaph's experience has, has two parts. First, we see his confession of his disillusionment. You look at it in verse 2. But as for me, you've got to love Asaph's honesty. We don't have to, but I, I love Asaph's honesty. You know, he's just honest. I was visiting the other day with a, a friend of mine, and I called him up, and I was asking him how he was doing. He says, you know, man, I just, I just haven't really been in the Word. I just haven't really been reading the Bible. I said, you know, I appreciate your honesty, brother. It's not a good place to stay, but I appreciate your honesty. You know? Asaph says, as for me, I came close to stumbling. He's honest. He says, you know, God is pure in heart. God has a good heart. God is good. As for me, God is good. But I'm not so good. You know, I came close to stumbling. I don't know about you, but I can say that. God is good, but I'm not always so good. And he says, God, you are good. What he held as his conviction was not always the case. And he takes us down the path that he went. Look at, secondly, his, the cause for his disillusionment. In verse 3, he states it in a general way. For I was envious of the arrogant and I saw, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What he expected was not what he experienced. He expected that a good and sovereign God would bless those who are good and righteous. And what he experienced was that the good and righteous were not blessed, but those who were wicked were, from the world's standpoint. And it was confusing to him. I could list people in our congregation who could testify to at least have reason to wonder and question because in their life experience they are following God but life is not dealing them a very good hand if you will allow me to use that expression I guess I just did so you didn't allow me I can't take it back okay here's the deal I have a pastor friend of mine a good guy loves the Lord serving God his son took his own life How does that happen? 
There are people in this congregation who are struggling financially. There are people here who have physical ailments and problems and struggles that are ongoing. There are people here probably who have work situations that challenge them and they don't know why. They're struggling. They miss out on the promotion. They're vilified for their faith. They're living in families where they may be the lone ranger for Jesus. And everybody around them seems to be doing really well. And they go, what I expect is not what I experience. And the world flourishes. Lady Gaga and Madonna and Charlie Sheen, they seem to be getting along just jolly. He says, I almost stumbled and fell. Seeing the proud in our family, seeing the proud at our workplace, seeing the proud at our, in our communities, doing really well, prospering. Interesting word in the Hebrew. The word prosper means complete, or it means whole. The root word means complete. They're complete and whole, and we are not complete and whole. You know, it's pretty tempting to say, well, just chuck this gig here and let's go over here. Let's go to this side because this side seems to be better off than where I'm at. That's the temptation. I want their health. I want their wealth. I want their ease. I want their prosperity. I want their popularity. I want their power. I want what they have. That's the temptation. If you're a grandparent or a parent who has children under the age of 12, you've probably seen the movie Frozen. Maybe some of you seen it ad nauseum, okay? But in the movie Frozen, old Hans here is the scoundrel because Hans is envious. He wants to possess what Elsa and Anna have, the throne of Arendelle. And he pursues it with great zeal. Asaph says, I was envious of the wicked. I was envious of the proud. I wanted what they had. Seeing what they have causes us not only to be envious, this is the thing that kind of stuck out to me, but also to be bitter. Look at verse 21. He says, when my heart was embittered. You see, not only is it one thing that the, the, the righteous are prospering, but God is holding out on us. And so we become bittered, resentful towards God for not giving us what we, quote-unquote, deserve or think we deserve. That's where he's at. Specifically, we see him teasing out what it means for the wicked to prosper. Asaph shares two reasons for his discontent. In verse 4, he, he says, he articulates and begins to articulate the prosperity of the wicked. And it manifests itself in many ways. Verse 4, there are no pains in their death and they have plenty to eat. That's what it means when their body is fat. You know, there's some cultures, some places in Africa particularly, where the wealth of the chief is measured by his girth. Okay? So the bigger he is, the richer he is. He says, their, their life is a, a piece of cake. They're, I like the NIV translation of verse 5. It says, they are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. They, they don't have concern. Their money is not an issue for them. They don't worry about where the mortgage payment's coming, whether they can afford to go to the dentist, whether or not they're going to be able to put food on the table this week, that's not an issue for them. They also have not plagued by the ills common to man. They don't worry about cancer. They don't worry about uh, the flu. They're not sure. They're not concerned about arthritis. It seems to pass over them. They get a pass. Or that's what it seems like. Verse 6, and naturally so. Hey, if you're on easy street and you're living against God and things are going well, then you become arrogant. That's verse 6. It says, therefore pride is their necklace. They wear it like jewelry. The garment of violence covers them. They do what they do without impunity and they don't care what they do because they're going to get by with it and it works for them. I don't know if you knew this, but the the pornography industry in the United States is an intentional 
plot by a certain group of people to undermine Christianity. Now you may say, well, where did he get that? Well, I did a little research. It's a deliberate attempt to quote-unquote subvert and destroy Christian culture. The main players in the pornography industry are seeking to undermine whatever vestiges of Christianity is in the culture. If you destroy the family, then you destroy the culture based on the family, which is God's institution. His first institution was the family. And so that's their plan. You and I could name on both sides of the aisle politicians who are absolutely corrupt. And they continue in their corruption, unabated, unchallenged, and like Teflon. You know, like there's nothing that ever sticks to them. They just, and it's a, a, a different deal. So here we have it. Their pride. Verse 7, he says, their eye bulges with fatness. Now that, that's what the, the New American Standard says. I, I didn't check the other translations, but that's kind of a fitting. Bulges. It's like, you know, they're like the, the blowfish, you know. They're just, they, they, they're, they're just bulging with fatness. They have so much. And yet it says it's not enough. Verse 7, he says, the imaginations of their heart run right. They got all they want, but they could just do dandy with more fun and fullness and folly. Just give me more. I want you to look at a couple of pictures here. The first one is of Floyd Mayweather Jr. The guy only made $285 million. He's the highest paid professional athlete. The next guy is the second highest paid professional athlete, Lionel, I don't know if I'm saying his right name, Messi, okay? Only 111, poor guy. Million, that is. Now let me, I would, I bet either one of these guys would not turn down a pay raise. They'd like more and never have enough. Here's the deal. They want more. 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have, their, have set their mouth against the heavens. They mock God. They mock God. They mock God's people. They mock God's word. They mock anything about God. Ted Turner has explicitly stated that Christianity is a religion for losers. That's his conviction. And he has also stated that it is Christians he despises. No, that fits verse 9. Verse 10 in the English Standard Version says this, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. So what, are, what, are we, what is it saying? People who taste, I think, people who taste the opulence and the power are drawn into it and want more and do not condemn or criticize it at all. In fact, they want it. A few Christmases ago, we spent Christmas Eve with our, our daughter in the basement of a million-dollar home. I didn't want to leave. I mean, there we were. Had the place all to ourselves. Jacuzzi, exercise room, big screen TV, kitchen. Had it all. Taste it. And you want more. Verses, verse 10. Then verse 11. He says, and they say, how does God know? Here it is. Thumb their nose at God. And is there any knowledge with the Lord? They are defiantly, defiantly irreverent towards God. And they see no need for God. They see no necessity in God. They see no need for Him. Now, I'm going to put in a little plug, but I've been to the Perk Up Cafe. It's uh, on Clive. You go down to 86th Street, the University, and you head west. You go to 28th Street and go north, and it's up in the, the little uh, strip mall up there on the opposite side of the clock tower square thing, okay? 
I've eaten there many times. Every time I eat there, I order the meal, I get the meal, I eat the meal, then the waitress comes, oh, would you, did you save room for dessert? I say, absolutely not. I'm full up. If you don't have a need, then you don't take it in. People who are rich and famous, they, have, they don't see the advantage. What, what, what can God offer me? That's why they're proud and arrogant because they got what they want and they are satisfied with what they have. And then in verse 12, he summarizes the state of the wicked. He says, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease and they have increased in wealth. It seems that their blasphemy is blessed and they are carefree and cash flush. What do they need? Nothing. From a standpoint, they live in the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Their prosperity of the wicked is galling enough, but then he says, here's another reason why I almost stumbled and fell. It's not just because the wicked are prospering, but look at this. In verses 13 and 14, the punishment of the righteous is insult to injury. Verse 13, he says, Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure. I mean, what am I doing? I must be some sort of a chump because I'm trying to live a godly life and look what it's getting me. These guys are the ones who are prospering and I'm suffering. The payout of a pure heart is oftentimes pain. Wow, that's hard to swallow. Hardship and heartache and headaches for those who follow Jesus. That's the reward. Here's the deal, folks. Fix our eyes on our pain. Fix our eyes on other people's prosperity. And it leads to envy and bitterness towards God. That's verse 14 is the payout. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. The roller coaster started here. Conviction. Surely God is good to Israel and to everyone who's pure in heart. Whoosh, boom. Downward trajectory. Plummeted. But there's a way out of the pit. And that's in verse 17. We must not only experience delusionment, we do, then we exercise discernment. And I say that not that somehow we conjured it up on our own power, but the Spirit of God working within us enables us to discern things that are true about us and about Him. Here's what he says in verse 17. Two realizations. I'm going to start in verse 16. We regret what is troublesome to us. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should be, have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph's integrity and his genuine faith is seen by his refusal to speak publicly of his confusion for fear that it might cause, or his struggle for fear that it might cause others with a pure heart to stumble. Look at verse 15. He, he says, I, I, I wouldn't speak that way because if I did, I wouldn't share this publicly because if I did, then those who with a pure heart, that's how I understand it, okay? It doesn't say this actually in the text. <laughs> I'm not quoting the text. I think what he's saying is that I, I, would, I wouldn't say that because it would cause other people to struggle and they might stumble. He kept his confusion silent. But notice in verse 16, the, the fruitfulness of his faithfulness is seriously troubling to him. That's when I say we regret what is troublesome. We don't like it. He says in verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He's discouraged. I knew some folks, were, first pastor we served in, there was a corporation there and there were people there working seven days a week for prolonged periods of time. They were discouraged. They were worn out. They were down. He was down. He was discouraged. He was frustrated. Secondly, we recognize what's true. Verse 17 is the pivotal point. It is the turning point. He's at the bottom of the roller coaster ride, and now he gets jolted into reality. He says, until uh, he came into the sanctuary of the Lord. I just want to stop here a minute. 
It's instructive to me. It's inspiring to me that at the depth of his disappointment, at the depth of his disillusionment, where did he go? To the Lord. Into the sanctuary means he went into the presence of God. That's where the presence of God was for them. He went and met with God. In the midst of his despair, folks, I don't know everything that's going on in all of your lives, but I can say this, when there is despair, when there is discouragement, this is the place to go. This is the place to go. Because only in God's presence will the perplexing issues of life come into clear and correct perspective. I keep my eyes on myself. I keep my eyes on the world and I'm going to be off base. But if I get my eyes, if we get our eyes on Jesus, we get our eyes on what God has for us, what God's truth says, what God's word says, and who God is, then we are set aright. Then we're put back on the right path. God made two things clear to Asaph in this meeting. First, the wicked will be punished. And that's verses 17 through 20. Notice he says, Until I came into the sanctuary of, the God, of God, then I perceived their end. And I believe that he means their final destiny when he says their end, their ultimate end. It includes their physical termination, but it includes their eternal destiny, I believe, is what he's talking about. Notice the words. Destruction destroyed, despised. He brought them down into destruction. He destroyed them. He despised them. That's verses 18, 19, and 20. He uses those words, which testify that this is an eternal painful consequence of their actions. This is a call for those who are living the wicked and prosperous lifestyle to repent because it's headed in the wrong direction. It's a call for those of us who are pure in heart to remain true. Remain true. Secondly, we see uh, that not only do the, the, are the wicked punished, but the righteous will enjoy God's presence. Verses 21 through 22. Asaph realizes what's true about himself. Notice he says in verse 1, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and I was ignorant. He confesses that his focus on himself, his focus on other people, he was acting like a brute beast. He was acting like, you know, just an animal. And that's what he says, and that's what he confesses to. He admits that his confusion came from ignorance, and it led to bitterness. I've been around livestock a lot of my life, and I can tell you this from fact that if you bring anything into a pen with pigs in it, they'll devour it. I mean, they just eat it up. It doesn't care if you just fed them. They don't know enough not to eat. They just eat and eat and eat and eat. If you give people ease and pleasure and prosperity and power, and you dangle that carrot out in front of people, even people of a pure heart, they are going to be going after it. They're going to be tempted to sacrifice what is a pure heart in order to gain. They'll sacrifice the eternal for the temporal. That's the temptation that's there. Sacrifice our relationship with God because we get what's immediately gratifying to our flesh. And Satan is no fool. He tempts us with the tangible and the temporal, so that we'll sacrifice that which is eternal. And he, Asaph came to that realization. i got to cling to what is eternal. Even though Asaph was fickle, he learned in the sanctuary that God is absolutely faithful to him. The wicked will be punished, and the righteous will enjoy the presence of God. And how does he articulate what that presence looks like? Three ways. In verse 23, we see God's presence. And notice he says, you will continually be with me. I, when I read that, first of all, I think, you know, or he says, I will continually be with you. That's how he words it, I guess, in verse 23. I, uh, nevertheless, I am continually with you. I 
even translate it like I thought it was in the beginning. He will be with me. No, I will be with him. I want you to look at this picture of these, uh, these, this dad walking with these kids. See, that's God. That's the picture that Asaph paints of God. He grabs me by my right hand and he walks with me. I long for the days when my kids were little and I could walk them to school. And I held one in each hand and I walked them to school. You know, I was their dad. They were my kids. And I was with them. I was continually with them. That's, he says, I am continually with you, Dad. That's the picture he paints. I'm continually with you. And then it's, it's not only, you know, he, he says, God walks with the pure in heart. Even though the wicked may continue to prosper and I may continue to suffer, guess what? He's got my hand. He's got me. And not only that, but there's God's guidance. Notice what he says in verse 24. With your counsel, you will guide me. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. He will guide me and direct me. He will guide you and direct you. may not know exactly what it all is, but he'll guide us when we need it, where we need to be, and how we need to be. I have absolute conviction that God led me here. I have no idea why. It's not for me to figure it out. It's for me to be obedient. And thirdly, we see God's deliverance. The end of verse 24, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. There it is, folks. Look at what is eternal, not necessarily fixated on what is temporal. You'll lead me into glory. So we experience this disillusionment. And then we, we somehow express some sort of understanding of what's going on and exercise discernment because the Spirit of God works with us. Finally, God leads us into the enjoyment of delight. Verse 25. Now, this gets really hairy. Whom have I in heaven but you? Answer, Nobody. I mean, that's easy, right? If you're here this morning, you know anything about God, you just say, oh, who do we have in heaven besides God? Ah, nobody. That's the, that's the Sunday school answer, right? That's not hard. But he came to that conclusion in the sanctuary, meeting with God. Now, the next statement, the next affirmation that he makes is a bold affirmation that the tangibles of this world are nothing compared to the treasure of a relationship with God. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Nobody. But then he says, On earth, I desire nothing but you. Now, if you mark your Bibles, you can circle that, you can underline it, you can highlight it, you can asterisk it, you can bold face it, whatever you want to do. But that is a statement that penetrates to the core of who we are. All week I've been praying, God, I want the truths of this passage to come home to me. I want purity of heart in my heart to be priceless when I'm tempted for it to be pointless. And this is the crux of it, I think. You see, desire is, is what he greatly delights in. And he says, there is nothing I delight in. I think it's comparatively. Nothing I delight in more than you. Now let's get a little personal. Not my spouse. Not my children. Not my reputation. Not my pleasure. Not my health. Not my life. There's nothing that compares, you know, we sing this. That we sing this song um, that, that we, we, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. With all my heart, I want to serve you, Lord. With all my heart. I want to worship you, Lord. With all my heart. With all my heart. But do we mean it? Asaph says, in the sanctuary of God, I came to the realization that I desire nothing on earth besides you. It doesn't matter how prosperous the wicked are. It doesn't matter how punished I am. What I want is you. Because in you, I am complete. What did Jesus say when the 
Pharisees ask him, what's the greatest commandment? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. He says, God, there's nothing. I, as I say to you, brothers and sisters and people who maybe I don't even know Jesus, can we say that? Nothing. I desire more than you. Goes back to something that I had a, a quote about. Uh, Prof said, "Do I know God well enough for Him to be all that I want?" I mean, we know He's all we need. But do I have a relationship with God that's rich enough for me to say, "God, You are all that I want." I mean, you're the most important thing. It's not the only thing that you want, but it's the most important thing in my life. That's where Asaph was. That's where I want to be. Verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord is the strength of my life and my portion forever. He sustains me, and he is my inheritance. He's enough. He's enough for me. Verse 27. I read verse 27 and go, why did he put that there? You know, the, the wicked, they're going to perish. And those who are, resist God, they're going to be conquered and, and destroyed. Those who are unfaithful. Why do you put that there? Because he's contrasting the treasure of God and the treasure of heaven with the tangibleness of the world. It's fleeting. It's going away. You see, life apart from Christ leads only to destruction and ruin. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not pure in heart through the shed blood of Christ and your trust in it, guess what? This is the end. It may be hunky-dory now. You're tempted to live the good life now, but in the end, it is not good. And not good is for eternity. As our brother of mine said, life is a dot. Eternity is a line. The line is long and the dot is short. So don't get it wrong. He closes, verse 28. But as for me, now look back at verse 2. But as for me, he ends where he began. He came off the roller coaster ride, started with his conviction, plummeted into the depths of disillusionment, was rocked and jolted back into reality by his presence of God, and he comes. Full circle and returns now, he says. But as for me, James Boyce in his commentary on this psalm is astute in his observation. If you look at the pronouns and the progression of the pronouns in this, it takes us on that roller coaster ride. The roller coaster ride is, is my th- wording, but it's, he begins with they, they, they. If you look at verses 4 through 12, they, meaning the wicked. Then it's I, I, I in verses 13 through 17. Then it's you, you, you in 18 through 20. And then it's you and I in 23 through 28. Clarity in our confusion comes only through communion with God. That's the place to go. God's nearness to be our good, for it to be our good. Notice what he says in verse 28. I I made a choice that you would be my refuge and that I would tell other people about it. The requirement for him to be our good is a choice to trust in him, and the result is that we will tell others about him. You know, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you don't accept Jesus, you don't really give a rip about what is said, you say, I'm just going to live my life and take my chances, the text tells us, reject God and reap eternal judgment. For believers, here's the deal. He says, only in his presence will we gain proper perspective. And then we'll be able to know God well enough for him to be all that we want. And so we're called to, you know, cultivate our walk with God. The wicked will be punished. The righteous will be rewarded. A pure heart is priceless and not pointless. And and there's no better way for us to be reminded of how priceless a pure heart is than to break the bread and drink the cup. 
Because when we do, we remember that it's priceless, but it's not free. Because it cost Christ his life so that we could enjoy this priceless life with God. And so when we break the bread and drink the cup, we remember that he gave his life so that all who would believe in him and his death as a payment for their sins would have their sins forgiven, would have a pure heart, and then God would come alongside of them. He would be present with us. We will be with him ever. He will walk guiding us with his hand upon us and that he will deliver us ultimately. And so if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, I just invite you to take of these elements as a remembrance of how priceless it is to be a member of the family of God. And if you don't know Jesus, then I just invite you to put your faith and your trust in him so that you can enjoy this priceless life. And our praise team's going to come, and they're going to sing some songs, and I'm going to break the bread and, and ask you to come after you have a chance to um, examine your heart and get it right with God so that you don't eat or drink, as Paul says, of the elements in an unworthy manner. And if you don't feel comfortable coming up front and taking the bread and the cup, that's fine. Nobody's forcing you to do anything. Just sit quietly and pray. Father, take these elements and uh, use them to remind us of how priceless it is for us to possess a pure heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Kids have come back up to, sorry, young adults have come back up to to help us sing this. So, just as as we as we go out today, let's let's praise the Lord together. Uh, it's good to be in His house and praising Him and living for Him. Mm-hmm.